Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Rob McNeil from the Migration Observatory. And I'm Jackie Broadhead from the Global Exchange on Migration and Diversity. So, uh, Jackie, what are we going to be talking about today then? So, the Nationality and Borders Bill is currently working its way through Parliament in the UK and there's a particularly controversial clause, Clause 9, uh, which focuses on citizenship deprivation and increases the rights of the Home Secretary in a kind of long-standing pattern of increasing the Home Secretary's rights to take somebody's citizenship away. So we're looking at that, but also contrasting it with an exercise that took place in Assam in India called the National Register of uh, Citizens. And one of our master's students on the MSc programme here at Oxford has written a really fascinating book on that topic. So we wanted to take the opportunity to look at a slightly broader focus of what's it mean to have citizenship and uh, what happens when bureaucracies and kind of arbitrary measures take it away. I mean, we all, I suppose, think that we know what citizenship is, but what is it actually? What does it mean to have citizenship and what does it mean to have it taken away? So if we were to focus kind of just on the UK, I guess probably most people don't know that there are different types of citizenship in the UK. So quite a large group of people will have what's called automatic citizenship. So you're born, a birth is registered and you're able to then get a passport. Uh, But then there's quite a large group of people who have something called citizenship by registration. And that's where they have to apply to the Home Office in order to get citizenship. Uh, There's quite a large fee that comes with that. And that's just the UK. The US is very famous for having something called birthright citizenship. So the idea that if you are born in a place, you have citizenship in that place. Places that have lots of migrants often have a focus on having birthright citizenship. And then there's another sort of, sometimes it's called Eusolian Eusanguinis. And Eusanguinis, kind of from the Latin, uh, is this idea of kind of citizenship more by hereditary. And often countries that have a lot of focus on emigration, so places like Italy, for example, citizenship is really focused on your ties through your families. And so really the processes of how we decide who gets citizenship and who doesn't are also questions about who really belongs in a country. So it's a technical process, but it's also a question about uh, how the country sort of thinks about its citizens and who is in and who is out. But isn't citizenship something that's also about your subjective identity, the idea of who you are? And the fact that there's a legal control over this seems sometimes to be uh, like a kind of a very strange way of managing things. I mean, we've obviously had the case in the fairly recent past in the UK of Shemima Begum, for example. This is a girl from Bethnal Green who travelled to Syria to join the Islamic State. And as a result of that, had her citizenship, her British citizenship removed. Now, She was born in the UK. She'd lived here all her life and perceived herself to be British. But because obviously she had Bangladeshi parents, she had her citizenship removed. But this idea of like who you are and who you identify with and what it means to be, I mean, British, you know, this subjective concept is something outside of the legal, the legal construct of what a citizen is, surely, or or, or isn't it? 
one of the things that we talk about is this idea of a kind of hierarchy of citizenship. So this question of, is it that you are, you know, a British citizen or you're not a British citizen and that, you know, is irreversible? Well, legally, that's not the case. So that might be a conception that people have that then changes. This sense of a kind of hierarchy. So if you're a dual national um, and it's much more likely to refer to people from BME backgrounds than from white European backgrounds, this idea that your citizenship might might be conditional so can you tr- have trust and when we think about things like the Windrush scandal in the UK they're really focused on ideas of that trust breaking down so there was always a kind of social contract and understanding and a legal precedent that people who came as part of the Windrush generation were British citizens and then that was changed in law but does that mean that that's changed in fact and ultimately even though the Home Office said repeatedly that people weren't British citizens you saw this kind of huge outcry of people saying, well, no, we know that these people belong with us, that their identity is part of Britain. And then there's a second question, which is about the idea of the nation state. So one of the things that we really know is that a lot of these ideas around borders are much newer than we like to think. And one of the, in some of my research, one of the sentences that's kind of um, resonated with me is um, uh, the Home Office decide who is British, but anyone can be a Londoner. This gets to another really important point, though, doesn't it? Which is that your identity and your this subjective concept of who you are is one thing. But at the end of the day, citizenship gives you rights. And I mean, I think a lot of these actions that are designed to take citizenship away from people are kind of part of this kind of transactional concept but that flies in the face of what it means to be part of a nation yes and one of the things that we also look at is questions then of access to legal advice and justice because when ideas of citizenship are brought into question there's also the idea of do people have equal access to the ability to challenge that I think one of the other things that, that that's worth exploring that has come up again and again is this idea of a hostile environment. And I think that that focus on punishing people who who aren't part of the citizenship, part of the part of the nation, particularly those who don't have the ability to demonstrate that they've got a legal right to be in the country, has kind of rolled into this idea that there's an us and a them, the citizen and the non-citizen, the people who are part of the community and the people who who shouldn't be part of the community. And I think from my perspective as well it's been very interesting to see how this has rolled out in media discourse that then has direct impacts on policy choices policy decisions and then on the lives of individuals yeah i think that's completely correct i mean this sense that the hostile environment on irregular migration is predicated on the idea that we have a really clear and fixed idea of who irregular migrants are and that they always stay in that category. Whereas the reality is that people actually cycle in and out of irregularity quite a lot. That's not so true in, in questions of, of citizenship, apart from when uh, when that can, when that's taken away, that's fixed. But we also know that there are people who are eligible for citizenship who can't get to it. So I think the rubber hits the road when the public have this idea of, oh, well, you're excluding this group of people. We have a fixed idea. We know who they are. And then that becomes a reality in something like Windrush when then 
there is a disconnect between who people thought were being excluded and they had ideas about who they were, uh, rightly or wrongly, but that was definitely disproven by the type of people then that they saw that were being excluded. So in the case of the Windrush generation, that would be people who have been in the UK for an extremely long time, who also had the expectation of citizenship rights that were then taken away. And I think understanding that what feels like very fixed, very firm categories that we can place on people in reality it's much harder to do that and also that bureaucracies can make very arbitrary decisions and of course with the Windrush generation you had this situation where a lot of people's documentation had been lost or even destroyed sometimes destroyed even by the home office and these very you know, slips of paper or forms that were filled out decades ago can have a fundamental bearing on people's lives and I think that we're going to explore that a little bit with our guests later on as well. So I'm delighted to be joined by Zoe Gardner, a policy and advocacy manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, and Abhishek Saha, a journalist covering northeast India for the Indian Express, author of No Land's People, the untold story of Assam's NRC crisis, and a current MSc student on the Migration Studies Masters. Zoe, Clause 9 isn't the first UK legislation in recent years to focus on questions of citizenship deprivation. Can you give us an overview of where Clause 9 came from and how the policy landscape has evolved? Sure, yeah. So citizenship law in the UK at the moment is largely governed by the British Nationality Act from 1981. And that did include the possibility in some circumstances to deprive a person of their citizenship. That power was basically in practice never used until the 2000s. But in the Nationality, Immigration and Asylum Act of 2002, the power to deprive someone of citizenship was reworded to give the Secretary of State much greater discretion. So previously it had really been worded in a way that was meant to be if a person had acted against the state during wartime or had um, acted against Her Majesty or Their Majesty, whichever one it was at the time. But it was updated to sort of be if the Secretary of State was satisfied that a person had acted contrary to the interests of the state. And then in 2006, it was updated again and, and rewritten to... Uh, the Secretary of State needs to be satisfied that deprivation is conducive to the public good, which was a massive widening. And that's when it really we see that it really started to begin to be used in, in earnest. And in 2014, it was updated again, and that said that you could deprive someone of their British nationality, even if it would make them stateless in some cases. Um, then we've come up to the current day where, again, what Clause 9 does is it it removes the checks and balances that exist on that power yet further. So it removes the requirement that you even have to notify somebody of the decision to deprive them of their citizenship, which is ultimately a move to deny people the right to appeal against any decision because it keeps them in the dark about what's happened to them. Um, so so what we've seen is, is a massive increase in the use of this power over the last decade. And a lot of the hostility that we're seeing in our immigration system at the moment and, and, and much of what this Nationality and Borders Bill is building on is scaffolding set up under Theresa May at the Home Office and that hostile environment and that, you know, that, that, that deliberate targeting of people who are considered foreign nationals even where they are not as people who are undeserving of the same rights and protections and human rights as, you know, real Brits, quote unquote. Thanks, Zoe. Abhishek, 
Your work focuses on a very specific example of citizenship deprivation, so the National Register of Citizens. Just give us a brief overview of where that project came from and how it was undertaken. To put it very briefly, I mean, it's a very broad topic. Um, Assam is a state in northeast India, which has seen migrations for a long time now from very different communities. As a result of very strong demands to detect undocumented migrants, supposedly, allegedly undocumented migrants in Assam over the last many decades, we came to this process, you know, which is called the National Register of Citizens. It's basically a bureaucratic exercise and it basically aimed to prepare a list of Indian citizens in Assam. It asked all of the states, approximately 33 million residents, to bring documents and try to establish that they or their ancestors were living in India prior to a cut-off date of 24th March 1971. It asked a lot of people amongst whom a large majority are unlettered, poor, and there is a severe constraint in their understanding of legal and bureaucratic processes. And hence, marginalized people suffered. And the process was, needless to say, it suffered from several systemic flaws. It started somewhere in 2013, and the final NRC was published in 2019, which excluded 1.9 million applicants. Now, after it was published, what essentially happened is that most important stakeholders, including the ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, and several important socio-political actors in Assam said that they were very unhappy with the results, that the number of quote-unquote foreigners in Assam should have been much larger than 1.9 million people. So they again appealed to the Uh, Supreme Court of India and these appeals are pending now and as a result the fate of these 1.9 million people are in limbo you know because these people a vast majority of them are prepared to appeal against the exclusion and prove their Indian citizenship they will in no way accept that they are Bangladeshis or foreigners uh, or belonging to other nationality apart from India and just to add a brief point to put a broader understanding, there are two other processes which precede the NRC, which is a quasi-judicial body known as the Foreigners' Tribunal. So since the 1980s, a special wing of the police in Assam could investigate anyone that it suspects to be a foreigner, again within quotes, and refer its case to the Foreigners' Tribunal. Now, The functioning of foreigners' tribunals, again, has been uh, criticized. It has been several orders of the foreigners' tribunals have been overturned by higher judicial platforms like the High Court. And there was another mechanism, which was called the marking of doubtful voters, in which local election officials essentially had the power to mark anyone that they thought to be foreigner as doubtful, thereby disenfranchising them till their cases were cleared by the foreigners' tribunals. And now, when the appeals against the exclusions in the NRC begin, these 1.9 million people again have to appeal to these foreigners' tribunals. So, there are 100 foreigners' tribunals in Assam, 100 in numbers, um, will become very crucial once the appeals process start. 
that idea of kind of doubtful voters really struck me from the book because of this idea of arbitrariness that there weren't answers as to why people necessarily were there or not and I think often we have these quite fixed categories of an idea of well somebody is a citizen and that's a very fixed category or they're not a citizen but what really struck me was that the categories were much more fluid. Yeah of course so in a family you could get theoretically one of the partners is Indian but the other is actually a foreigner. But on the ground, what you will encounter very often is that in a family, there are people whose documents have gone through and passed the rigorous examinations of the NRC process or the processes of a foreigner's tribunal. But there are others in the family whose documents haven't passed the scrutiny of officials and member judges of the foreigner's tribunals. So when you are talking about a country which is not very strong, I mean, it's strong in documentation, but there are loopholes in the entire documentation regime. And then when you place so much faith on documents, then there are so many cases in which a minor spelling mistake, a minor change, for example, the use of a person's grandfather's nickname on an official document could lead to that person's granddaughter in today's India being disenfranchised. So in Assam, when you have a cutoff date and you are asked to prove your lineage-based descendancy based on that cutoff and a complete faith is placed on the documents that age-old documents, decades-old documents, documents which might have drowned in floods, you know, which might have been burnt in fires, with tattered old documents, completely yellow, you know, those cards that refugees were given when they had crossed during the partition. And the establishment places its complete faith on those documents if, 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 if minor flaws could take away citizenship rights and disenfranchise you, then absolutely you can expect that there will be arbitrariness in the adjudication of such cases. Thanks, Abhishek. Zoe, turning back to the UK, thanks so much for putting Clause 9 in its context of the sort of longer story of citizenship deprivation. Um, It seems, however, that it's hit quite a nerve with people in terms of this idea of conditional citizenship or some of the ideas that Abhishek was exploring about kind of hierarchies uh, and arbitrariness within decision making. And I just wondered how you thought that this clause is affecting wider questions of trust, identity and and belonging in the UK. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting hearing that because while the situation is different, it's, it's a lot of the same sort of um, issues do seem to to come up. It was very interesting and really heartening to see the response from the public when Clause 9 was introduced. So to be clear on this point as well, the Nationality and Borders Bill covers a huge amount of ground. Like it goes across the citizenship, immigration and asylum systems and introduces a huge amount of change. And yet, even as introduced, that wasn't enough. And this clause was introduced at committee stage. So after the bill had already been debated by MPs in the House of Commons. And it was an attempt, in my view, to to sneak this in. And it completely backfired on them because it got a lot of attention and because it 
potentially impact such a huge number of people in this country and specifically ethnic minority communities in this country who are more likely to have a dual citizenship that is the the people who are really impacted by this and who if you look at the people who have had their citizenship deprived you know it's it's almost universally people of color and so the the reaction was i think much stronger than the government expected and this this understanding that this is a racist measure and that it was taking moving us further and further away from the concept of citizenship as a right and putting it into the realm of citizenship as a privilege that is bestowed on you by the goodwill of the Home Secretary, which is not how we understand citizenship and not how we understand our belonging in this country. And I think that the clear discriminatory nature of how it's been used, people understand this as an issue and something that can happen now. And the the response has been overwhelmingly that people don't just oppose Clause 9, which removes, as I say, like essential safeguards and checks and balances on the power, but they oppose the power as a whole. And it, I think it's very interesting that the public in general appear to be completely out of step with the government in terms of citizenship as a whole. The public in general, according to polls, firstly think that we have birthright citizenship in this country, so that if you're born here, you are automatically a British citizen. We don't have that. And, and when they learn that we don't have that, they think we should. This is an integrated, multi-ethnic society that we live in. We have a huge history of, of being that for very obvious historical reasons. And people feel strongly that when you're born here, when, when you have citizenship here, this is your home. And it is wrong for us to keep chipping away at those rights and excluding out secondary classes of citizens. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting what you talk about in terms of perceptions around race, but also one of the things reading Abhishek's book was about poverty and inequality and the way that that intersects with race, particularly in relation to access to kind of information and advice. And obviously in the UK, we know that there's vast sort of variation in terms of access to advice and Obviously, that intersects a lot with the work that JCWI does. And I wondered if how you see the intersection between questions around citizenship deprivation as a question related to poverty and inequality, as well as in relation to race. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's all sorts of intersecting factors there. Again, in terms of just obtaining your citizenship and your like accessing your right to citizenship in general terms. We in the UK charge by far the most of any comparable country for a person to not apply to be granted citizenship, to register their existing right as a British citizen costs over a thousand pounds, which means that many, many people who are born or who grow up here who obtain the right to British citizenship cannot enact that right, cannot access that right, cannot pay to, to get that right. And clearly, there can be no justification for that. It's way beyond the cost of administrating applications. It's a profit-making enterprise from the Home Office, but it is so obviously discriminatory against people from low-income backgrounds. And then when you come to the deprivation of citizenship, you can appeal, you have the right to appeal. But obviously, one of the things that this clause does in taking away the need to notify you that you have at all been deprived of your citizenship is actually what is aimed at is attacking that that appeal process that people um, have the right to. But if you can't access expert legal representation, legal aid in this country has been slashed and slashed and slashed. Um, and yeah, a lot of what JCWI does is that we use our charitable status and our charitable funding to put more money 
into the time that it takes for lawyers to build a good case. And if you're just relying on legal aid funding, you simply don't have enough time. There is not enough money to build an effective case in the same way. So it really is about pricing people out of their rights and, and also qualifying what is a right and who is deserving of it. Thanks, Zoe. Abhishek, just to finish, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about what the proponents of these type of policies wanted. And you describe, I really liked the idea of the NRC as a sort of magic wand that would make very complex problems, very simple problems. And yet in the end, you describe a process that remains kind of unresolved and where most parties remain unsatisfied um what do you see as the kind of next steps and the broader learning that has been taken from what's happened in assam yeah to answer your question i mean can a legal slash bureaucratic exercise however technology driven and promising to be fair to all parties concerned can such a process solve what's essentially a socio-cultural political problem where there are so many very deep uh, intersectional intersectional issues uh, involved in such a process. So that leads to a question that whether the prejudices, the, the ideological convictions or the, uh, you know, the beliefs that the proponents of such exercises hold, will they ever be satisfied by facts, numbers, data, arguments based on facts? Or will political ideological beliefs always be more dominant than numbers and facts and, you know, information that we have, we have supposedly arrived based after a technologically driven, supposedly fair exercise. Thanks so much, Abhishek and Zoe. Thanks for joining us on the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Rob McNeil. And I'm Jackie Broadhead. Join us again next time when we'll be talking about more fascinating migration-related topics.